Good afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. In the previous two live shows, we began to look into the specific root language in the earliest parts of the sacred text Christians know as the Bible. What we've learned is that some of the most basic concepts utilized by leaders leaders of what I'm calling the mistaken Christianity, which is the literalistic teachings of fundamentalism, are based in mistranslations of that text and turn out, therefore, to be false. Today, we will continue and finalize that discussion, moving into what has come to be known as the New Testament, to look at the root language of some of the most basic concepts of modern Christianity. The root language turns out to be very different from what teachers of fundamentalism or the literalistic version of the Bible, are teaching. These, this and other parts of mistaken Christianity can be listened to again and again to tie down the details and help you begin your own research into the root language of the Bible. So stay right here today. So today we're going to talk about three of the most basic concepts to Christianity. We're going to talk about heaven, we're going to talk about hell, and we're going to talk about the devil. These are three concepts that uh, that seem that are just basic to the wholeness of Christianity, or the and uh, and we're going to look into what they mean. They do have a rich meaning, but it doesn't necessarily mean what we've been taught that it means. So let's start with heaven, since that's a happy topic. Let's start with that. The word heaven is mentioned many, many times in the New Testament of the Christian Bible. It's often named as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Commonly, and regardless of religion, heaven is considered to be a place, a literal place, into which souls retire upon death. Our arrival at that place has everything to do with our somehow winning the impossible battle of good versus evil, either by ritual, by prayer, or by good deeds. In order to more fully understand this word, let's just explore some of the ways that Jesus talked about heaven. So I'm going to give some of the verses that describe heaven. Jesus described it very, very clearly for us. He told us several times, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And so we're going to look at three or four of those. We can't look at all of them, of course, but we're going to look at three or four of those that I think are pretty basic. And um, we're going to talk about what they mean. The first one is from Luke 17, 20 through 21. And it's a real one that people read a lot. It's called, I mean, it says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, that's the way it's been translated. We will look at that word, in your midst, uh, in a few minutes. Here's another one, and this one's from Matthew 13, 24 through 30. This one's a story, a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and and then went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's another one that people often use to, cons- to talk about the difference between heaven and hell. And we're going to talk about both heaven and hell today. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it's full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's from Matthew 13, 31 through 32. And then from Matthew 13 again, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Matthew 13, 33. So there's a lot more of those, but these are going to suffice as an example. The first statement from Luke 17, 20 through 21 is not a parable, but a very direct description that the kingdom of heaven, terms used interchangeably with kingdom of God, can be found within us. The single word for the phrase in your midst is entos. It's not in your midst. It's not three words. It's one word, entos which means within, inside, or in your soul. And that reference, as all the other references that I use in the root language, are taken from the crosswalk.com. You can go to crosswalk.com for free, and you can look up this root language yourself so that you don't have to take my word for it. You can look it up yourself. As I've said in previous episodes of The Mistaken Christianity, I'm nobody. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I'm not, a, you know, a, a Christian theologian. But I am very intensely interested in what the Bible really says. And so I did my research, and this is what I discovered: that what the root language says is very different from what we've been taught. What we've been taught that passage means is that Jesus was describing himself when he said, "The kingdom of heaven is in your midst." They, he, they were saying, they say that he's saying. That the kingdom of heaven is here with me. I'm, I'm the one, the way to the kingdom of heaven. But what it actually means is it's inside you. It's here that we begin to suspend the notion that heaven is an external place to which we go after we die. For here, without the use of parable, Jesus clearly tells us where we may find it. Inside your own soul. Jesus also speaks about heaven in the three parables uh, that we just named, too. Each of these parables speaks not of place, but of process. The first speaks from a metaphysical interpretation of the fact that the kingdom of heaven was part of our origin. The man sowed good seed. That's origination. He sowed good seed. The sowing is an origination point. We were originally planted in the Garden of Eden, which we talked about in our previous episode. Um... And we described it as an internal awareness of ourselves as divine beings. The enemy is the duality trance state, which allows tares to grow along with the wheat, tares which we must eventually be weeded out, differentiated, and thrown into the fire. And we're going to come back to that fire in a minute, so stay with me here. First, we must consider this growth and this gathering up that speaks of process. Since we know that the kingdom of heaven is within, We can also know now that this process, this evolution, is within us. Here is is described an origin, a growing of wheat and tares, the growth of each, a decision about what to do with them, and a gathering of the wheat and tares. It's therefore a process, an evolution. It is this evolution that describes the kingdom of heaven. So, So far what we discovered is the kingdom of heaven is not a place, but a process, an evolutionary process. 
The second parable mentioned earlier tells that the kingdom of heaven may only be experienced as a tiny spark of awareness within us, but eventually it will grow so big that even the birds of the field will be able to build their nests therein. The birds of the field could, from a metaphysical and metaphorical interpretation, represent transcendent thoughts that will eventually be able to inhabit the tree. Remember that we said uh, earlier that in the Garden of Eden, trees represented thoughts. So that's also very possible. Is this tree the same tree of life which originated in that Garden of Eden, already discovered to be a state of awareness in which we know who we are as divine beings? The third parable tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like leavened bread, which when divided will grow until all is leavened. This is a strange analogy given that the Jewish people ate only unleavened bread and they thought it a sin to eat leavened bread. So why is Jesus using leaven as an image for heaven? Perhaps that is precisely why he used this analogy. Perhaps he meant to say that what we expect to be true will not necessarily end up being true. Is it possible that what appears to us to be sin is just another way in which the kingdom of heaven is evolving within us? Can even our sins be our teachers? For most, that idea feels quite a stretch. To some, it might even be leaning toward evil. What we learn from this parable, however, is that this kingdom is constantly growing. Not only that, but even through our divisions, the kingdom of heaven continues to grow within us. Even though we're split off, consciousness from unconsciousness, good from evil, duality, light from dark, yet we continue to evolve. It's also significant and worthy of note that in the same chapter of Matthew from which we collected the mentioned parables, Jesus also explains why he speaks in parables. Here's what he says. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear. In their, their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which it says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I would heal them. That's from Matthew 13, 13 through 15. These parables are metaphors, which should be interpreted as metaphors. When we interpret these parables, literally, we hear and see without hearing and seeing. It does appear that this is exactly what we've done with words like heaven and hell. Let's look a little further. If we look at the root language of the word Jesus used for heaven, it is oranos, the vaulted expanse of the sky with all things visible in it, the universe, the region where the clouds and tempests gather, where thunder and lightning are produced, the seat of the order of things eternal where God dwells and other heavenly beings. That's from crosswalk.com as well. Nothing in that definition says that heaven is a place we go after we die. As we have seen from Jesus' parables, heaven is within us. It is a growing, evolving process within us. If we put that together with the meaning of this word, we may find that this growing, evolving process within us is also the seat of the order of things eternal in our lives. Just as Carl Jung saw the self as the central organizing force in the psyche, heaven is the central organizing eternal force within us. This means that our lives are constantly being ordered by our souls, by divine self, by by I am that I am, by only Christ truly, by heaven within. We also see that from this growing, evolving seed of the order of things eternal, all things are visible. 
All things includes both duality and oneness. So it is that the word is further rooted in the word oros, which means a mountain. Another metaphor representing that strong, majestic transcendence from which we can see all things. Therefore, heaven is not an external place at all, but rather an internal process in which significantly both wheat and tares grow, in which both visibility and clouds originate, in which we originate, in which we evolve as the seat of the order of things eternal makes decisions about our lives. This process allows to see all things. Ultimately, heaven will completely overtake the mind of humanity so that even our most transcendent thoughts can inhabit earthly consciousness. In other words, heaven is our evolving awareness of who we are as those divine beings we were originally when Elohim, when we, as Elohim, recreated ourselves as form. When we arrive at this ultimacy, we will have arrived at a union of all the opposites, form with formlessness, good with evil, masculine with feminine, consciousness with unconsciousness, etc. Therefore, as was described in the previous episodes, heaven is the divine self, which is both our source and our goal. It includes the origin of in oneness, the split, the process of integration, and the completion of that process. So what we've been taught is that heaven is a place we go after we die, and it's very, very separate from another place called hell. And we're going to talk about hell in just a minute. Uh, But what we see here is that just like we saw in the very beginning when we talked about in part two, the the beginning, the Mistaken Christianity part two episode, we talked about the beginning of our origins, and we learned how we began in the Garden of Eden, which was an enclosed space of consciousness of who we are as divine beings. And that place got further and further away from us by Elohim's hand, and then by the choices we made, and uh, we began to live in duality consciousness which heaven means to unite with. Heaven means to, means to bring the masculine and feminine together, to bring form with formlessness together, to bring those throughout the duality of good and evil together, because actually God is beyond good and evil. Uh, we live in the duality trans state. God does not. So let's, let's go back to that fire of, of that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, when he said that the tares would be thrown into the fire. He is said to have interpreted that parable for disciples, explaining in, thir- in Matthew 13, 39 through 40, that the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. That verse is traditionally interpreted to mean that there is a literal devil, a literal fire which will be found in hell, into which sinners will be cast during the so-called end times. There's another very strong possibility, however, when we consider what has already been discovered herein. First, as we will yet clarify, the devil is an internal accuser who accuses us of not being divine. We're going to discover that more as we go today. Putting that notion together with this story, we can see that, that when we believe this accusation, we grow tares instead of wheat. Second, traditionalists tell us that here Jesus is prophesying about the so-called end times in which there will be a great divide between the righteous and the unrighteous, with the righteous going to the literal place of heaven and the unrighteous going to the likewise literal place of hell. The phrase end of the end of the age, however, has even greater significance. The end is suntilia, which means consummation, 
doesn't mean end. It means consummation. And it is rooted in that same word used in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which we were told that we should be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's Matthew 5, 48. The word used for perfect there, and, and as the root word of santilia, is telio, to complete, fulfill, or finish. So the consummation is a completion, a fulfilling, and a finishing of something. So we now know that Jesus was not telling us to be good or holy. Rather, he was telling us to finish the process that is heaven within us. The word age is ion. For, which means forever, unbroken age, eternity, universe, age. It's rooted in I, which means perpetually, incessantly, invariably, at any and every time. Again, that's from crosswalk.com. Jesus is not talking about end times, but about a consummation that goes on perpetually, even incessantly. Essentially, then, Jesus is telling us here the purpose of our existence the consummation of which is our completion, the finishing of the creative process that began when the formless created itself anew as form, when Elohim created humanity. We begin to get the hint here that eternity has nothing to do with time in much the same way that heaven has nothing to do with place. Time and place are dualistic concepts about which eternity and heaven know nothing. Rather, eternity is the energy of ever-evolving consummation. Perhaps Jesus, like all the other great master teachers, did not operate in a world where time rules. These master teachers operated on the soul plane where time does not exist, in the perpetual now. So when Jesus speaks of a perpetual consummation, what he means from a metaphysical perspective is that in the perpetual now, whatever acts as a tear inside of us is being incessantly transformed. Incessantly means insistently. It means there's just no way to escape it. And I love that term for that reason. Later in that same chapter where Jesus was speaking, he continues to explain his parables to his disciples. And it appears again that he's telling us of the torment of eternal hell. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The one who has ears, let him hear. That's from Matthew 13, 41 through 42. The most important sentence in this paragraph is the last one. Remember that Jesus told us that he spoke in parables because those who heard would not really hear and those who could see would not really see. He was speaking here to those who can hear. And the use of that sentence means that he's just spoken again in parable. We know that the root, the root language, however, he may be actually speaking much plainer than we previously thought. The word furnace is kaminos, which is a place for smelting, for burning earthenware, for baking bread. That again is from crosswalk.com. That word does not indicate eternal punishment, but change, transformation. And that smelting is the process of producing a metal from its core. Burning earthenware finishes the process of creating the plate, bowl, or vase. And when we bake the bread, we finish the process started with recipe. There's more here. We're going to get to it right after the break. But what I want to say right now is so far, what we understand about hell is that it also is a process. And it is a process of transformation. It does not indicate eternal punishment, but transformation. 
So we're going to be back right after this break with some more about that. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Life can be confusing at times. There can be uncertainty, disappointment, and an inability to clearly see where you're headed. But it doesn't have to be this way at all if you understand how to take the next step in your life. Tune in to Living the Miracle with your hosts, Michael and Raphael Tamora. We'll help you to find the deeper meaning that awaits you in your life, have certainty in yourself, and learn to be clairvoyant. Listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll free. 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at AndreaMatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today about the mistaken Christianity, part four, uh, in which we're discovering the New Testament, basic concepts of the New Testament, heaven, hell, and the devil. And what we've said just before the break was that hell was a process, and we're going to talk some more about that right after this. But I want to tell you before we do that about Super Soul Sunday coming up, Sunday, October the 20th at 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific. I love Oprah's Super Soul Sunday shows. They are so uh, edifying. They just teach me so much, and I always have so much peace at the end of each one of these shows. So I really want to encourage you to listen as well and watch as well. So... On Sunday, October the 20th at 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific on OWN in her flower garden in Maui, Oprah Winfrey talks to the Buddhist nun, author, and pioneer of the mindfulness movement, Pima Chodron. They will examine Chodron's new book, Welcoming the Unwelcome, where she reminds us of how to connect to our basic goodness. Here's a clip from that show. So when things show up for us that are uncomfortable, that cause us to suffer, and by suffer meaning we wish we weren't in this predicament. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or cause stress, anxiety, confusion, a sense of hopelessness, where do I go? What's the first thing we should do? Acknowledge what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge what you're feeling. That is what you mean by welcoming the other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, first it's just acknowledging, and, you know, welcoming might be a little loaded. Yes. <laughs> because maybe acknowledging is like, what you're acknowledging is that everything in you is shutting down. Yes. And that your mind is racing 100 miles an hour saying, it's their fault, it's their fault, or I'm a horrible person, or something 
like that. So the first thing is to get get as quickly as you can to acceptance. Yeah, to recognize and then it's almost like if you were doing it in steps, although it kind of comes together. Recognize and then welcome, embrace, accept. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a very, very interesting show. I'm going to be there for it and I hope you will be too. So we were talking just before the break that uh, the word for that is used for um, the furnace, as Jesus seems to be describing hell, is a place for smelting, for burning earthenware, for baking bread. And it does not indicate eternal punishment, but change. So there's more. The word kaminos, which is the word that I just told you was a place for smelting, for burning earthenware, for baking bread, is all, also has a root word, and it is rooted in the word kao which means to set on fire, light, burning, to burn, to consume with fire. This furnace is a furnace of fire. The word is pur, P-U-R. While the burning or, or, or up or consuming by fire is katakayo, to burn up, consume by fire, rooted in kata, which means down from, throughout, according to, or toward, and in kayo, which, which, which we just mentioned a minute ago. Uh, which means to light, burn, to burn, consume with fire. This burning that transforms by consuming is so thorough that when it's done, a total consummation has occurred. So that's, you know, and that's what typically the people uh, think about when they think of hell, that people are just going to be burning, burning, burning forever. But this says it consumes us. It doesn't say we just are eternally tortured. It says it consumes us. It's the same thing as our completion referred to earlier when Jesus said that we must be perfect. It is a consummation, a total consummation, so that we are completely transformed. So it's a transformation process that consumes us, that totally consumes us. And that means that we turn into something different. What is earthenware, what, what starts off as, uh, you know, uh, dough becomes bread. What starts off as clay becomes earthenware. What starts off as, as molten becomes metal. So it changes things completely. So there's three significant things we should know about this consuming fire. One, when this gospel was written, there was no other form of light besides fire. So we have to assume that this fire is also light. In two, in Hebrews 12, 29, God is described as a consuming fire. And in Three, in John 1, 1 John, excuse me, 1 John 4, 8, we learn that God is love. When we put all this together, we may conclude that if the divine is both consuming fire and love, and fire is not only a consummation but light, then the divine is all-consuming love and might. This means that the perpetual consummation that is occurring within us as one gathers up the aspects of ourselves in order to consume them in this love and light. What's even more significant, if we open to this metaphor, is this. He tells us that all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness will be gathered out of his kingdom. The word out of is ek, which is a primary preposition denoting origin, out of or from. In other words, the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness were living in the kingdom of heaven when they were gathered. This means that the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, like those tares, are growing right alongside the wheat within the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the perpetual consummation. In other words, these stumbling blocks and lawbreakers exist within us as individuals, 
and their being ever consumed in the all-consuming love of the divine nature in which they already exist. That consummation, that consumption, is the transformative power toward completion into full awareness of who we are as divine beings. So in other words, heaven, hell is in the employ of heaven. Hell exists within heaven. That's what's, what we're, is becoming clear in. This transformation process exists in, within us, which is where heaven is. These tears, these lawbreakers, and these stumbling blocks will be gathered together, joined or married or integrated, to throw them into this furnace of fire in which they will be smelted or made into metal from their core essence, made into beautiful earthenware or baked into bread. In other words... They will be transformed into their deepest, truest essence, which we already know is our divine nature. Through these, though these parts of us may go unwillingly, weeping and gnashing of teeth, nevertheless, they will be gathered as part of the perpetual consummation and transformed into their essence as divine beingness. This is very similar to that process described by Carl Jung, in which he says, there can be no resolution. Only patient endurance of the opposites, which ultimately spring from your own nature. You yourself are a conflict that rages in and against itself in order to melt its incompatible substances, the male and the female, in the fire of suffering, and thus create that fixed and unalterable form that is the goal of life. We are crucified between the opposites and delivered up to the torture until the reconciling third takes shape. As was also said, earlier, that reconciling third is the organizing center, the self, in which, the, in this case, the divine self. So we said that that organizing center, we talked about that in one of the previous episodes, that is who we are. We said that was what heaven is. It organizes. It's a, an, an, an eternal organizer of our lives. Is it not so that we are often transformed into more awareness of oneness by the very experiences that were created by the duality trans state? How many times have we grown more compassionate toward both self and other by being put through a fiery furnace of trauma and betrayal? How many times have we come to know life to be all the more meaningful because we had come so near to death, be it psychological, emotional, or physical death? This is the perpetual consummation that brings us to completion again and again, lifetime after lifetime, reincarnation after reincarnation. It is the process known as divinization a process which carries us through the duality trans state, allowing us to encounter each aspect of ourselves that remains stuck in dualism, resolving the issues therein little by little, reincarnation after reincarnation, until we become more of who we originally were, divine beings. What will then be incorporated into that beingness is form, which was once only formlessness. So when the divine created us, there was something wholly new in the universe. There had been no form prior to that time, no substance, only formlessness. And the divine created form. And the intention was to unite form with formlessness in a way that we could do that consciously, that we could understand ourselves in this world, of this world, but uh, of the divine as well. And that's the process. In order to do that, we have to walk through duality. And, and the duality trans state is what I call it. It's a hypnotic trance state in which we believe that we're separate from the divine, and we act as if we're separate from the divine. We think we have to strategize and plan and plot to create the lives that we want, 
when actually what we really need to do is unite with the divine within us, and that will do all the work for us. That's that effortless effort that the Eastern religions talk about when they talk about uh, just rejoining the, with the divine self. The Bible Gita calls it the divine self. So, uh, divinization is the term that's used in uh, the Christian church. Divinization was a concept that appears to have originated in the Merkabah mysticism around the 3rd century B.C. In the 2nd century, it was taught by Aristobulus, a Jewish philosopher, and it was also espoused by the Essenes at the Qumran. Gnosticism, which arose in the 1st century B.C., also espoused a belief in divinization, and it is thought that this belief existed all the way through the 3rd century A.D., it was also taught by Philo of Alexandria between 20 B.C. and 50 A.D., and later by Origen, a 3rd century theologian, and by Arius, a Libyan-born priest in the 4th century. These beliefs, however, began to be called heresy after the 1st and 2nd councils of Nicaea and were suppressed more and more into the 4th and 5th centuries. So the Council of Nicaea was called uh, um, by Constantine, uh, who was the emperor and who wanted to unite his kingdom under one religion. And he decided that Christianity was going to be that religion. And so he called all the priests together and he wanted to make some decisions about what the text, the sacred text meant. And, um, and not, not, uh, only a handful of the priests actually came to those meetings. And uh, Constantine fairly ruled those meetings and so it, it was not ruled uh, in, by religious or spiritual manifestations, but rather by the wishes of, of a secular uh, king or emperor. So there's that. There's also the fact that one of the, th- one of the things they decided during the First Council of Nicaea was that Jesus was the only son of God. There was uh, some thought that Jesus was a man who was who was the Son of God, but was had come here to teach us that we were all sons of God, and that we could all do what He said, you know, and what He did. And He actually tells us this. He says that uh, because I go to the Father, you can do greater things than I've done. But that passage seems to have been forgotten at the Council of Nicaea. And they decided that Jesus was the only son of God and was the only one who could do those kind of miracles. And anybody who tried to do those miracles without going through Christ was of the devil. And so uh, that decision was made. And then what happened after that was all the other texts that came after that, whatever was uh, canonized into the Bible, had to have that meaning. All the translations that were made after that had to have that meaning. And that's part of how the these translations got skewed. But the concept of back to the concept of divinization, there's a uh, one of the most beloved writers of the Catholic faith, who's Thomas H. Green, speaks of divinization as the goal of prayer in his books. In fact, he cites several New Testament scriptures as pointing the way to that process, including First John three two. Though it cannot be said for sure that if he included reincarnation in that process. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. If Green is correct, and we look at this statement from a metaphysical perspective, at least part of the process involves seeing the Christ, or the Christ nature, as it really is. A nature that is within us, just as heaven is within us. 
The seeing is much the same as that in Numbers 21, when the wounded Israelites looked at the bronze serpent on the staff, and that seeing alone healed them. Just All they had to do was look. They didn't have to pray. They didn't have to get on their knees. They didn't have to ask for forgiveness. They didn't have to do anything else but just look. So that seeing is the same thing there. It has the same power. Richard Valentisis describes this process in the individual and in the collective very well in his book, Centuries of Holiness, Ancient Spirituality Refracted for a Postmodern Age. And here's what he says. This is long, but I think it's important. The effort and energy put into working toward the divinization of the self, of the communities and social groups to which the seeker is connected, and of the natural world in which the seeker is located, take deep root, forming the imaginative and intuitive understanding and knowledge of the way in which divinization occurs. These visions of divinization emerge from a kind of yearning for union, seeing the ways of divinization and experiencing both the glory of success and the pain of failure, while at the same time growing in wisdom and knowledge of the ways of deification. The seeker achieves a capacity to attain continually to divine presence and a less labored effort at cooperating with divine impulse. As these experiences combined with the wisdom gained through prolonged effort take root in the seeker, the seeker yearns more and more for living completely in the divinized state, in the divinized societies and communities and in the physical universe made alive and restored by divinization. So what he's saying there is we we slowly, as each individual begins to uh, access and be a part of the presence of the divine within themselves, it begins to change the societies as well. We see many statements in the Bible that reflect this final outcome in which the entire world is divinized. None is more clear than this one in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So the ultimate outcome here is for God to be all in all, not for some people to go to hell and some people to go to heaven, but for God to be all in all. That's the, that's the goal. And, and that is the source as well. The source was that God was all in all, and then God is going to become all in all again through form, through form in form. We see this symbolism represented again in the Revelation to John in the marriage that occurs toward the latter part of the book, as well as in the throwing of the beast and the false prophet, who are thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, which is Revelation 19.20. Most interpret this lake of fire to be a metaphor for hell, especially when we consider the burning with brimstone. A closer look, however, reveals yet more information about the ultimacy of our completion. The word lake is limne, a harbor or heaven, probably because it connotes closeness to shore. The accuser... The part of us that accuses us of not being divine is thrown into the harbor of all-consuming love and light, that same fire of which we spoke above, but was referred to as a furnace. This lake, however, burns with brimstone, known to most of us as that word that goes handily with hellfire. Yet the word is kion, which is actually divine incense, to the generation in which John, the author of the Revelation of John, lived. Brimstone was regarded as having the power to purify and to ward off disease. The word is rooted in the word kios, a general Greek name for deities, but is also used for the one and only true God, and in the definitive article, oj, which means this, that, or these. So combining the root meanings, it is literally translated as divine incense made up of these deities. Metaphysically, it might be the smell of the divine within us, or the sense consciousness of the divine in the body. Again, we may notice that we have seen without seeing and heard without hearing. 
it's with that intent that the divine to bring us all to full awareness of the oneness of our true divine nature. So what we see here is that hell is, again, in the employ of heaven. That hell is a transformative process, just like heaven is a process, and that uh, it includes changing us and bringing us to the place where God is all in all, all in us, all, all there is of us. So that's a beautiful thought, and we're going to hold that thought while we go to this break. Right after this, we'll be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron, author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. It's quite common for people to wonder whether happiness is real or just an illusion. Yet we all have an inner voice that is telling us that we need to change. Where to begin? Start by taking time out of your schedule every week for Revelations and Wonders, Secrets to Life and Happiness, with host Fabian Edju. There is a true beauty within your soul, and happiness flows from inside. We'll help you find that new confidence within. Listen every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free. 1-888-346-9141 That's 1-888-346-9141 you can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today about the mistaken Christianity, part four. We've discovered that there are uh, verses in the Old Testament that have been mistranslated to mean certain things about original sin, and we talked about that in the second and third uh, parts of this, uh, this, th- these episodes, uh, and today we're talking about what's going on in the New Testament: heaven, hell, and the devil. So we were talking about hell being a, a transformative process, not a place where we go to eternally suffer, but rather a process of consummation in which we become more and more aware of who we are as divine beings. And uh, so we have the process of divinization, in which this process, transformative evolution. In awareness within the kingdom of heaven, which is within us, continues incarnation after incarnation until it's complete. Now, where am I getting the idea of reincarnation? Well, that's in the Bible also. For example, in Matthew 9, 14, Jesus declares John the Baptist to be the reincarnation of Elijah. If you care to accept it, he says, he himself is Elijah who was to come. I find it very interesting that 
most people who are literalists make that statement symbolic, but every other thing that Jesus says is literal. I think that's interesting. But nonetheless, in comparing the dress of lodging and self-renunciation, self-renunciation of both John the Baptist and Elijah in the books of First Kings and the Gospel of Mark, one finds similarity too hard to miss. The soul named in one incarnation as Elijah has evolved into another incarnation in which he's paving the way for Jesus to model for us what it's like to live as a divine being right here on planet Earth in form. In John 9, 2, Jesus' disciples ask him about a man who was blind from birth. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? The question definitely implies that the man could have sinned before this current incarnation in order to make himself blind at birth. Jesus answered, however, according to divinization in the next verse. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. This verse is often interpreted to mean that since Jesus is about to heal him, he was fated to be blind so that Jesus could prove his own divinity by healing the man's blindness. That interpretation, however, flies in the face of Jesus' many admonitions to those whom he healed and others to, know, to tell no one what he had done. There are several of those. Mark 1, 41-42, Matthew 16, 18-21, Matthew 9, 27-31. I could go on and go on. Further, that interpretation implies that both the question and the answer had only to do with this singular man rather than to all of us as humans. Not only is that interpretation reductionist, but Jesus did not say in order that I might use this man to show you my divinity. Rather, he said, in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God are always being displayed in us if we consider the meaning of the Greek word translated in English as displayed. The word is fanaru, which means to make manifest, visible, or known what has been unknown, to make actual, realized, to make known by teaching, to expose to view, to show oneself, to appear, to become known, thoroughly understood of who and what one is. The root word is phaneros, apparent, manifest, evident, known. And phaneros is rooted further in phaino, to bring forth into light, cause to light, shed light, shine, as well as all the other definitions that we already gave. Phaino is rooted yet again in phos, light, the light emitted by a lamp or a heavenly light, a star, God is light and truth, and rooted still further in femi, to make known one's thoughts, to declare, to say. All of those root words came from crosswalk.com. When we look at the root language, we find that Jesus takes the idea of reincarnation and the classic definition of karma proposed by his disciples and turns it into a clear explanation of the divinization process. This man is blind because it's part of his soul's process of revealing his true nature, the light of truth, his own divine beingness. Then not only will this man be able to know himself as divine, but he will be able to bring into the world of logos. He will be able to declare it. This word displayed has to do with a definitive becoming that cannot be missed and must be declared. So there we have some evidence that, in the, that there is uh, such a thing as reincarnation in the Bible or what we would call divinization that includes reincarnation. So let's talk before we go today about the devil. The Greek term devil most often used in the New Testament is daemonion, which includes, uh, which according to Young's concordance means demon, but also shade. Could shade be similar to the term shadow as coined by Carl Jung? The next highest number of references is to diabolos, which is translated as accuser. Could our self-accusations add more weight to the unconscious as we send more and more unacceptable material there, thus strengthening the power of our 
accusations? From here on, these questions appear to be answered in the affirmative, as this devil takes on all manner of other personal traits. He's an oppressor from Acts 10.38, one who puts thoughts into the hearts of men from John 13.2, one because of whom we can fall into condemnation, 1 Timothy 3.6, one whom we can resist, James 4.7, one to whom we belong if we sin, 1 John 3.8, a deceiver, Revelations 20.10, one who casts into prison, Revelations 2.10. Jesus goes so far as to say that Judas is a devil from John 6.70. The first, first, the few other references is defined as a divine, deified spirit. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are demons who recognize Jesus as the Son of God. There are also two such references in Revelations. The Greek word daimonion is also translated to mean a divine power, deity, divinity, a spirit, or being inferior to God. Further, that word is rooted in daimon, or a god, a goddess, an inferior deity, whether good or bad. Diamond originates in Deo, which means to distribute fortunes. If we realize the root meaning as a powerful connotations for the words used in the Bible, we might have to conclude that the author of these words was referring to the distribution of fortunes that seem to have faded quality to them rather than a literal, to literal demons. In this case, a man possessed of a demon in the traditional sense might actually have been a man whose fortunes were considered to be miserable. Again, according to Young's concordance, the references to Satan in the Greek uh, and in the Hebrew, all translated as the hater, the accuser, are 51. 16 of these are in the Old Testament, and 12 of these are in one book, the book of Job, an allegorical and poetic metaphor for the suffering of humanity. The rest of these references are in the New Testament, beginning with personal references to a power, a personal power that is apparently very close to Jesus. The phrase, be gone Satan, from Matthew 4.10, was used by Jesus to a personal hater, or a personal accuser. It turns out that the phrase, which has been commonly translated as Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan, are actually tote nage, autos optico santana. I'm not very good at pronouncing the Greek, but that's the best I can do. Tote is then. Lege is also lego, which means to say, to speak, to affirm over, to teach, exhort, advise, command, direct, point out with words, name, speak out. Autos, uh, is, is also one of the words, and, that, and, and in, what is significant about that here in this phrase is that it means himself, herself, themselves, itself, he, she, it, the same. Altos is rooted in air, the air, particularly the lower, denser air, which is also rooted in amy, which means to breathe. So far, what we have is something like this. Then he affirmed to himself, indeed to the very essence, the breath or spirit of himself, is it possible that Jesus is speaking to himself here rather than to the literal external force known to modern man as Satan? The answer to that question could be found in the word upage, also hupago, to lead under, bring under, to withdraw oneself, to go away and depart. It is rooted in hupo, which means by or under, and also in ago, which means to lead, take with one, to lead by laying hold of, and this way to bring to the point of destination to lead by accompanying, to lead with oneself, to attach to oneself. When we look at the phrasing here and the root meanings of the words chosen, the meaning seems to run much deeper than a simple command for an external being known as Satan to go away. Rather, the terms could be translated to mean something like this. Then Jesus affirmed to himself, I will not be led by my accuser. 
Later, Jesus uses very similar words when talking to his disciple Peter in Matthew 16, 23, Mark 8, 33, as he tells Peter that his suggestion interferes with Jesus' mission, again asserting that he will not be led by something that is not in God's interest. The rest of the New Testament references seem to indicate the plausibility of that theory, as Satan is considered to be a very personal force who buffets in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, tempts in Mark 1, 13, takes advantage of in 2 Corinthians 2.11, and fills one's heart in John 13.27. In addition, in Zechariah 3.1 of the Old Testament, Satan is said to be standing at the right hand of God to resist him. Typically, this is translated to refer to a grand cosmic battle between good and evil in the forms of God and Satan. Later, however, we learn that it's Jesus who stands at the right hand of God to intercede for us. That's in Galatians 8.34. We also learn later of Jesus' exhortations in Matthew 5.39. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. This becomes even more real when we know that him who is evil in that passage is actually the one word evil, so that it should read, do not resist evil. Therefore, if Satan, who is evil, is standing at the right hand of God to resist him, but we are later told not to resist evil, how can we make sense of this? That question becomes even more imperative when we consider that it is actually Jesus who stands at the right hand of God to intercede on our behalf. Further, there are two references to delivering someone unto Satan in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and 1 Timothy 1, 20. Therefore, if Satan is so personal to Jesus that Jesus can refuse his leadership even in the desert where Jesus is alone, he sits at the right hand of God to resist him, and he can be useful to Christians so that we can deliver sinners over to him. If he can buffet, tempt, take advantage of, fill our hearts, and if the devil can put thoughts in our hearts, cause us to call into, fall into condemnation, set up resistance against us, deceive us, and even own us, casting us into metaphorical prison, even a literal prison, is it not possible that this Satan, this devil, is indeed a part of the shade or shadow of our own psyches, and that we may become possessed of, be tempted and buffeted by, be taken advantage of, and led by our own unconscious material? Is it not also true that when one cannot permanently repress part of the self because no one can permanently repress anything, that one tends to deliver oneself over to it? Consider the passive-aggressive temperament in which one continually represses anger until it becomes rage, as one day the proverbial straw is dropped and one explodes. Later, after the explosion, this person may say, I was beside myself, or I don't know what possessed me. Is this not the Satan that Jesus commanded to be gone? We often live in polarized states of existence in which good is compartmentalized into a category that includes all with which one can consciously identify, while under that, secret to ourselves, there's another polarized side with which one is unconsciously identified. Jesus refused to identify with any of these internal voices. So that's what he was saying when he was saying, get thee behind me, Satan. He was really talking to himself. If we look at the root language, it's clear that he was talking to himself and he was saying to that part of him that wants to accuse him of not being divine, that, that no, he does not have to listen to that voice. And uh, he does not have to listen to his own accuser. And that's true for all of us. We have conflict in us, as Carl Jung talked about, and we're crucified in the suffering between the opposites. And those, that conflict between us uh, and within us causes us to grow and causes us to transform. And that is the process that is heaven, that is the process that is hell, and that is what the devil represents also. So really, there's nothing to fear here. We're all in the process of discovering who we are, and that's where we're going to land. We're going to land in a, in in ultimacy, where uh, a place of ultimacy in which God is in all and all. And that is great news. So that's all we have for today. Your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. 
We'll be back next week. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week 